Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Monday morning, uh, and I'm going to do something a little unusual today. I usually don't talk about Hasidic Rebbe's, but maybe make a slight exception. I'm not sure if I'm doing the right thing, uh, because this week was the originator's uh, famous yard site. Um, this is an interesting subject. In my shul, this past Shabbos, uh, somebody came over, uh, uh, Menashe, uh, I was Friday guy, and he says, you know, uh, you talk today about Avad Yosef, because this past Shabbos was Avad Yosef. Uh, the yard site. And, okay, so I spoke a little bit of Charles Shudas. And there's a Hasidic guy there, and he says, oh, no, today's the original Rebbe. And years ago, I once gave a talk, it's online somewhere about this, um, because the original Rebbe had a very unusual um, situation with the Russian government, which is what I want to mainly talk about. And I put a bee in my bonnet, and maybe I'll do it. It's a complicated subject, but let's take a whack at it. Today's uh, podcast is being sponsored by uh, Jacob Bloomfield and the Bloomfield family here in Baltimore, uh, one of my early sponsors. This is in memory of his grandparents, that's Hennebus Mordechai, and it's the guys who have been Shmuel. Otherwise, if you're from old Baltimore, you knew them as Mr. and Mrs. Goldman, Isaac and Jean Goldman, from Goldman's Bakery. This uh, was an institution here for many, many years. If you're not from town, you obviously know what I'm talking about. But if you're in town, there were like two or three famous bakeries, and that was one of them. So thank you to uh, Jacob Bloomfield and the Bloomfield family. And now let's get underway. <clears throat> They're talking about the mission of Rebbe, or Israel Friedman. Um, and it's a most unusual story. Uh, the Hasidic altogether is kind of unusual. Uh, it's the early generations, but it isn't particularly so in its own way. Our hero uh, lived from 1800-1850, actually 1797-1850. So in other words, I'm going to try, as always, to situate in historical context. That means he lived, and he lived in uh, not far from Kiev, in the belly button of the Ukraine, which at that time was part of the Russian Empire. And so you have two um, movements happening at the same time. One is the rise and the explosion and the spreading of the Hasidic movement on the one hand. So he lived in the first half of the 1800s when all the time more and more people are converting to Hasidus. That's one thing. In the Russian Empire, in Eastern Europe. At the same time, you have a very complicated situation that goes as follows. Before 1770s, the whole area I'm talking about, Poland, Ukraine, Lithuania, White Russia, was not part of Russia. It was part of Poland. The Russians took it over, starting in the 1770s. But it was part of the Kingdom of Poland. And it was the Kingdom of Poland, so the Jews, so to speak, had it good. And everything was run by the local noblemen. They had the real power. And the Jews, you know, had their culture within 
the larger area of Poland. And basically, you had to stay on good terms with the local parts, with the local noblemen. And by the time you get to the 1700s, these two groups, the Jews on the one hand and the Polish nobles on the other, had been around so long, they're all very used to each other. The forms had, you know, evolved. And basically, you show your loyalty and all that to the nobleman, and he treats you okay. I'm oversimplifying, but that's more or less what it was. Once in a while, you had somebody who was abusive, but usually not. And economically, it was kind of good. As I told you before, during these years, the whole Eastern Europe was one big flea market. And wherever you went from one town to the other, everybody's hawking and handling right and left. And since the noblemen were interested that that should happen, because the more commerce that takes place, the more he gets in terms of taxing it off the top. So everybody had a good time, so to speak. But then, and the Polish state didn't exactly exist. There was formerly a Polish government, but really everything depended on the local nobleman. And you can you can get along with him, pay him off, this and that and the other. This is how life was lived. But what, the point I'm trying to make is it was very uh, laissez-faire, lackadaisical kind of governmental supervision, which was good for the Jews. If you want a modern example of this, imagine if in New York, in Lakewood and Muncie, the government didn't regulate anything, <laughs> right? They just took uh, extra taxes. The Hasidim would love it. They could build wherever they want. They could do whatever they want. There'd be no rules. Nobody bothered them about the corona. You know, you do whatever the heck you want. And you, and, and you give the guy the money. <laughs> like that. That kind of way. But then, the situation radically transformed. Starting in 1772, then proceeding, during the lifetime of our hero, remember he was born just before 1800, uh, Russia took over. Russia is 180 degrees the opposite of lackadaisical. The Russian government was famous for being control freaks, micromanaging freaks, and that's who they were. That was the czar state. They want to regulate everything, control everything, and they do not like Jews not listening to rules and all that sort of thing. Now, uh, therefore, the Russian government slammed down hard on all the vast territories they took over. So notice Russia, starting in 1770 and culminating in 1815, took over and ruled the whole Ukraine, the whole Belarus, the whole Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, the whole Poland, almost. Or, you know, a great part of Poland. That's a huge Kharkov. And in that Kharkov, they got millions of Jews, about a million Jews, maybe even more. That's a lot of Jews. It's like the booby price. It went along. You get the land, but you get the Poles, the Ukrainians, the Belarusians, and the Jews. The Russians didn't like any of that. The Russians wanted hom- homogeneous. Everybody should be Russian. Christian. Christian in the Russian way. Russian Orthodox. That, I tell you, Dad, uh, they just introduced a radically different mentality, which was, you know, putting the primary emphasis on top-down control. And as a result, because they were control freaks, they put in all kinds of rules and regulations, and they wrecked the economy. That's my point. So it was a time... When, there's a book on this, uh, History of the Shtetl, or something, New History of the Shtetl, whatever, came out a couple years ago. Uh, they, they wrecked the, the flea market economy I described. And uh, all of a sudden, poverty hit. They get it? The Russians introduced East European poverty. 
Before that, Eastern Europe was not poor. They have such an image, but it wasn't poor. The Russian, you know, uh, top-down control business messed it up. Ad hayom azeh. As long as the communists were in charge, the czar and then the communists, they were so emphasizing the control side that they couldn't let go on the economic side, and the economy was always retarded. And today, it's a very complicated situation because Ukraine, uh, Belarus, Poland, all these guys have broken away from Russia, but some have not really broken away totally from Russia, like Belarus, and some are in the process of trying to, like Ukraine, Lithuania. So economically, it's a, a big variation over there in Eastern Europe. Some places are prospering, like Lithuania, I was there, and some places ain't, like the Ukraine. Now, into all that, while that is happening, um, and the Russians are introducing what we call in history the bureaucratic absolutist state, which means the control freak kind of situation. At the same time, the, in, among the Jews, as Kochzich, that's when you had the rise of Hasidus. That's exactly when you had the fights between Misnagdim and the Hasidim, which the Hasidim won. And you had the spread of Hasidus. In fact, a historian could say that one of the reasons Hasidus spread like wildfire, not the only reason, was as a, as a, as a healthy reaction against the bureaucratic absolute state. But that's for a fancy lecture. Now, um, so our hero, the Rishon Rebbe, was uh, a very unusual person in this whole context. Uh, and you see, he's going to run into, without causing anybody trouble, he's going to run into the bureaucratic absolutist state. Uh, he was born in 1797. He came from the royal family. His grandfather, great-grandfather, whoever was a Magad Mezrish, need I say more? And the Magad Mezrish, the first one, it was a rebel with a court. Right? So he already started stick with the Malchus business. The Baal Shem Tov, as much as we know, it's hard to get historical stuff about him, was peripatetic. He, he, he didn't run a fancy show. He certainly had followers, but he didn't run a fancy show. Magan and Mezrich ran a fancy show. Just read the autobiography of Solomon Maimon, you'll see what a fancy show he had. People came by the thousands every week from all over Eastern Europe to visit him, give money, you know, participate in the Tish. All that stuff starts Magan and Mezrich. So this is the great-grandson. And his father died when he was very young, like five, six years old. I kid you not. And from that time on, let's put it this way, you're born with the same feelings of royalty, Malchus, which is me associate with him, like the Queen of England. Get it? That's the way a king and a queen feels. I'm naturally born superior to everybody else. That's how it was over here. Because after all, it's a Hasidic world. And the royal family starts with the Magad and Mezrich. And uh, what's there to talk about? So from the time the kid was born, he was treated with, with kid gloves. Shlomo Melch became a king at, at 12. This guy became a king at, at 6. Because when his father died, the Hasidim all looked to him. And from and he just ran with it, as they say, he was to the manor born. And so from a very young age, he's a rabbi. Right? Um, and he just built up more and more. So if he's born in 1797, we're talking about 1803, which is when Eastern Europe is being convulsed by the Napoleonic Wars. The Napoleonic invasion happened later, 1812, but, you know, Russia was at war back and forth with the French, with the Turks, as Kochzich, you know. And 
for our purposes, from 1800 or so till 1825, the, the, the emperor of Russia, Alexander I, who didn't like the Jews, was not as bad as the ones after him. And for a long time, he had his, his mind focused on, on Napoleon and the other stuff. So relatively speaking, I'm, I'm radically oversimplifying, relatively speaking, he didn't bother the Jews. Things will change later. And so this was good for the Hasidim because they could spread their movement. And here you have somebody who's the great-grandson or grandson, whatever it was, of the Magid, Magid of Mezrich. You understand, all the big Rebbes at that time had been Talmudim and the Magid. I'll give an example. The Balatanya, the Nomelamelech, you know, people like that. The Berdichever. So this is their Rebbe's grandson or whatever, great-grandson. You get what I'm saying? So in other words, they're all spread out and became gigantic movements, as we all know. No Melamelech, the the Levites of Berdichever, the Baltania and the others, the Chernobyl. But um this is the, 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 the royal family. Now, he carried himself this way from a young age. Um he must have been a remarkable kid to pull this off. Uh and he had just a natural it seems he had a natural talent for being for looking shoddy and classy. And being this a Hasidic Rebbe, he could do whatever he wants in the sense that even if he did strange things, people didn't question it so much. He didn't do anything against it, didn't. But, you know, in a usual way. Now, what's famous about the Rizhiner is, by the way, he started in this town, he ended up saying, settling in the town of Ruzhin, which is about 90 miles south of Kiev, just to give you an idea. That's why I say it's the belly button of Ukraine. That's where we spend most of the time. That's why they call him the Rizhiner. It's not where he's from. Now, uh, from early on, they had a big following. People came to him and gave money. Well, he kept the money. Part of the way he gave for tzedakah, part he did not give for tzedakah. And he undertook it. He's not the only one, but he became the one that's the most famous for living the lifestyle of a multimillionaire. Right? It's a Rolls Royce for him, baby. Specifically, he built a palace, and he imitated the lifestyle of the Polish nobles the prison who had been the rulers in the Ukraine. So here you have the Rebbe as a part, if I can use that term, um, which is very unusual. Uh, but on the other hand, we're talking about the time when the institution of Rebbe is evolving, is crystallizing. Remember, <clears throat> before the Balshanta, but certainly before the Magen Messers, there never had been a Rebbe in Jewish history. The Hasidic movement makes itself look like it's old, but it's new. A rabbi, you know, there's three words, rabbi, rabbi, and rebbe. A rabbi with a small r, a rabbi with a big r, and then a rebbe. A rabbi with a small r is a guy who knows some gemar. That's what that, t- you know and I know. I know if you're listening to this podcast, you know, rabbi's not a clergyman. That's new. The term Rav simply meant somebody knew some Gemara. If you know a lot of Gemara, you're a big rabbi. If you know a little bit of Gemara, you're a little rabbi. Then there's the rabbi with a capital R. That's what we call the Avbezins and that sort of thing, the Dayanim. Those are the official uh, hired clergy, but not in the English sense of clergy, of Kehillahs. Every autonomous course of community had its own court system, right? Every, every town had a basin. 
Um, Basin has to be staffed by people. Uh, whoever was able to try to get somebody to be a rov there, that's an official salaried position. It's a hired position. And that's Rabbi with a capital R. This is usually who we mean when we talk about the Gedolim. You know what I mean? The Ramo, you know, the Marshal, the Behuda, all those types. They're our basins, one time or another, one place or another. Um, possibly Rosh Hashiva, again, it depends where it was. That's Rabbi with a capital R. None of those are the American clergymen who give speeches at bar mitzvahs and visits the sick and all that, you know, none of that. But nevertheless, that's what that is. Now, what is the nature of the authority of the rabbi or the rabbi, with the small or the big R? Their answer is the charisma lies in the perceived scholarship and character. So somebody is perceived as being very knowledgeable in uh, in shots and post game, that sort of thing, he would get to respect. If not, he wouldn't. Okay? So that's the source of their authority. But on the other hand, were they listened to? You know, going back to Moshe Rabbeinu, literally. A rabbi's not listened to. He's at the Balabatim always fighting with him. Moshe says, do this, and the people do that. Moshe says, don't do this, and the people do it anyway. It's called the Chumash. And later on in Jewish history, if you know anything about any of the great rabbinim, and I've certainly talked upon it from time to time in different podcasts, they always had their enemies, they had people listen to people didn't listen, communities they fought with, Balabatim, they fought with, Gvirim, they fought with. That's how, that's life. You understand? So there's no such thing like the Ramah, for example, that Simon says, this is what we do, and everybody says yes. That's his opinion, and people could argue. Even on the basins, the different day on them could argue with each other, which is nothing wrong with that. I'm just saying, that's the nature of the game. And then came something called the Rebbe, which is a different thing altogether. You don't argue with him, you don't challenge him, you don't bother him. You don't have to listen to him, it's all voluntary. The rabbinate that I spoke about before was institutional and local. The rabbiship is not. Institutional means, let's say I was a Nota Behuda, for example. I have an official position, salaried position, constitutional position, as the chief rabbi of Prague, and I have the authority to be in charge of the marriages and divorces and this and that and the other. You know, here in Prague, we have a basin. If I'm charismatic, I might write a savior called Nota Behuda, and that might influence others, or not. Believe me, you get a hold of the new fancy schmancy you know the beauty, you look in the back. Everybody's arguing on things up and all that. Nothing and he didn't he didn't mind. You know, that that's how it goes. That's what that's the way it goes in the in the university too. Right? I publish something, somebody can challenge a peer review and all that. that that's what it is. The Rebbe position was not local, didn't depend on where you lived, and uh is strictly charismatic, it's not institutional. Nobody has to be a Follower, I repeat, has to be. Nobody has to be a follower of the Rizhner or the Lubavitch or anybody else. It's a voluntary. You see, if I live in Prague, I have to be a follower. There would be Huda constitutionally. That's why I pay my taxes. And his basin is the one I'm subject to. But for your chassid, they don't have to do anything. It's all voluntary. This is interesting. Now, true or not? Okay? By the way, you could have that someone was a chassidish rebbe and also was at the same time a rove of a town. So that would mean when he's wearing the hat as the rove of the town, you have to listen based in wise. But rebel wise it's it's not functioning that. Now in the case of the Rishner, who never was a rove, right? He never went to Yeshiva. I don't know how he learned. I don't know if he learned. This is famous. You know, 
he he was not looked at as a great Talmud Chacham. But he had gigantic charisma in spite of that. So it's very hard, you know, for the literature to understand that. But it doesn't matter. He, therefore, established a lifestyle, which they said people came and gave money, pidiones and things like this. Part of the money, as they said before, he gave away, and part of the money he did not give away. But instead, he used it to build a palace, have an orchestra, uh, have a Cinderella coach driven by a bunch of horses, uh, fancy table, gold and silver everywhere, and so forth and so on. And that's what it means when you come and visit him. Right? You come to the Rebbe, you come to, you know, Disneyland. You know, this fan- you didn't see this anywhere. And basically what he was doing was saying, I'm living the lifestyle of a Polish nobleman. So the Ukraine was full of these courts and palaces and, and castles. It was full of them, but they're all going. Here's a Jewish guy. Now, um, I'll say it again, he had an orchestra, I mean, you know, and all the rest of it. Even though he was a kid, he started when he was six years old. But of course, he, he lived to be 50, 55, whatever. And uh, he got married like they used to in those days when he's six or seven years old, seven or eight years old, and so on and so forth. But she's now the queen. You understand? To have ladies in waiting. There's a whole business. Now, it's a turn on or it's a turn off, depending who you are. Here's the interesting thing the Maskili, the Misnagdim, they all said, look what a phony. This is like a televangelist. He's just pumping the people for money while he lives it up. But that was a minority point of view. For the Hamunam, they thought it's fantastic. Now, the skeptics said, why are you giving him money? No, it's fantastic. And the argument was, he's a grandson of Magid. He comes from David Amel. He had a Yechusin to that effect. Everybody's a Yechusin to that effect. He really took it seriously. If he comes from David Amel, basically, he's like, he said, He's like a Behuda Nasi or, or, or Reish Galusas. There were people in the Gemara who lived a lifestyle rich and famous. There were also famous rabbis who did not. We know many stories like this. Rabbi Gamliel versus Rabbi Yeshua and so forth. So there certainly is the model of the poor shoemaker who was hungry and nevertheless learned Torah and became a great Tanar and Mower and all that. That is true. There's also the other model. You know, Ravashi, Rabbi Gamliel. People like that, who are great rabbis, all the rest of it, who are loaded. Okay? So, if you visited the house of this person, be very modest. You live in the house of this person. We went to Rebuda Nasi, lived in a palace. It's famous Rebuda Nasi said, I never was nana from Olam Hazeh. I don't know exactly what that means. You know, but the basic idea is trying to get across, usually when we learn this, is he lived a fancy lifestyle, but he didn't, he didn't take advantage of it. So, to use modern terminology, he had a gigantic refrigerator full of all kinds of goodies, and all he ate was a, a yogurt. <laughs> right? So it was just there for show, but not he himself personally is indulging in it. So if you're uh, a rich or chassid or a fan or something like that, that's what you're going to say. He himself didn't indulge in it. It was just there for show for the public. Why the public? It turns people on. It gives him a bigger prestige with the Jews and the Gaim, and that helps somehow in their Vodas Hashem. Because here you're coming, you know, the argument goes something like this. Now, this is how I understand it. I could be right around, I can only, like I say endlessly, I can only tell you the way I get it. So, I'm Jewish, I'm 1800 or so, 
part of Judaism that we don't have. Part of Judaism that we mourn, we don't have a base of Migdash, we don't have a Malchus base of it. We pray for it every day in the Dominic, correct? And so on and so forth. We'll have it. Now, perhaps a shul is a Migdash Ma'at. So where do you get Malchus based of in Ma'at? The Rebbe, or at least the original Rebbe. Okay? You go there, you see somebody conducting a tremendous Malchus. Right? Dressed very fancy, top of the line. Um, he dressed like a Polish nobleman, right? A lot of the early Hasidic rabbis used to dress in white all the time. If you ever seen a painting, I think it was a painting of the Tzemach Tzedek, perhaps, or something. He's all dressed in white. And some other pictures also. The original, who we don't have pictures of, but only descriptions. He didn't have a beard, he just had a mustache, maybe Kongro beard, I don't know. But that's the Polish nobles with the long mustache. You ever go online and look at a picture of a classic Polish nobleman? They got those long mustaches. That was the style. That's how he dressed. Obviously, he had a yarmulke, but I'm just saying, you know, it's, it's weird, okay? The weird was Iker part of his charisma. And all I can say is that it was a turn on more than a turn off by far. And as far as I'm aware, I gave a little thought to this. I think he was the biggest rep in his time. By that, I mean he had the biggest following. He certainly not, was not the biggest yarmulke. Right? He certainly was not the biggest Makobal or anything like that. The other babies have far surpassed that. But he had the largest following. The largest following, which is interesting to me because uh, he had followers like everywhere, all over Eastern Europe. Usually most of the Hasidic dynasties had a kind of localized business. The Lubavitch, as far as I know, was in the Belarus mainly. Uh, they had these Ukrainian uh, things like the Chernobyler it was in that area. You know, uh, they had Galcianer Rebbe's. The Rishner, it's he had followers from Lithuania all the way across to the Black Sea. It's my, it's most remarkable. Yeah. What I'm saying is like this. He was onto something. And even though he was very unusual, uh, there, you know, there's um an academic biography uh, called uh, Derek Malchus or something like that from Professor David Asaf. He's a modern Israeli historian. I think he used to be from Mizan anymore, something like that. One of those. And it was called Derek Malchus. I have it. From Shazard. And to tell you the truth, when I was thought about doing this, I pulled it out. And he did an English one. It was translated in English. And I used to have it. And I cannot find it. And I can't imagine who I lent it to. It's called The Regal Way. Uh... So he did a critical academic biography. Um, it's not all oh, Lashon or anything like that, but you know, a, a historically critical uh, biography. Obviously, to fight against that, the art scroll, right, Briar, who's a descendant of his, put out you know, an art scroll version called The House of Vision. Um, which is not an academic biography at all, but it's more like an art scroll type. But even if you read the art scroll type, They'll say, you know, he never claimed to be the biggest Hamakachan. He he acted unusual all the time, but he always gave reasons for it. Um, here, just I just opened this page at the art school. I say again, the art school at random. You see, it's kind of weird when it's I'm I'm quoting now, okay? When his followers asked originer, how come he'd extend the halachic time of tefillah? So I guess he's one of these rabbis that Davin's a shachris at twelve thirty, whatever. 
He explained as follows. I'm reading from the article. The first sin instigated by the serpent, there had been no, no time limit for tefillah. He could dive at any time. Right? He could dive in chakras any time. Only after the sin, when the world became tome, did our forefathers have to establish special times for tefillah, thereby re- repurifying the world during those times. <laughs> Get it? So in other words, after the Avera of Adam and Eve, so you need tefillah to repurify the times. After Maimon Har Sinai, the tumma of the Jews fell away, and they rose above time for a few minutes on, 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 when they said Nasim Nishma, only to fall again when they sinned with the golden calf. Finally, it was left to Nasim to establish times for tefillah. So that's the history, he said, of what's happening with davening. Uh, but for the soul of the tzaddik, now you see, he comes from the Magid. He comes from Davin Amel. So he has a different neshama than you and I. Uh, most of us have retreads. Right? Our souls have been here before. It's a Gilgal. We never get it right. It's, it's never a new tire. It's always a retread. But the soul of Tzadik, which had no part in the sin of the serpent, or the sin of the golden calf, is above time and can pray whenever he feels spiritually prepared. <laughs> so what does that mean? Me, who's talking right now, this is my 10th, 20th, 30th, 50th, 60th time I've been here. That's the principle of Gilgal. I screwed up before. I'm not getting it right now. I keep trying. Maybe one time we get it right. We won't have to come back as a Gilgal. So, me, myself, and I, I was there at the time of the Eglazov. So I participate in that sin. Therefore, I'm subject to all the other historical evolutions. And now I have to file, follow but suppose my soul had never been there. I'm a brand new tire, not a retread. So I had no part in that Eglazov business. Therefore, I'm not bound by its limitations. There aren't many of us. There's very, very few. Right? But for those few, they, they are, I'm not going to say above the law, but in some respects above the law. In some respects. Not in terms of Shabbos, Kashas, Tires, Mishpah, and all that. Little things like this. Now, that's weird. Unless you say it's a rabbi, like a rabbi asks no questions. Now, obviously, it worked because nobody's turned off by this. They talked about it, but you know, talking and hawking in the mikvah, back at the shoal, and during the week, that's part of life. Actually, give the chassidim what to talk about. And if you go endlessly on this stuff, it didn't hurt his charisma a darn bit. That's the interesting part. And so here's a guy who lived, fancy, delish, fancy, uh, who cared about money. He said, I care about money. He said that. But at the same time, he's saying that it's necessary. There's a certain style of Vodah Hashem. I'm serious. There's a certain style of Vodah Hashem. It's the one that King David lived on. It's certainly one Shlomo Melch lived on. It's the one Behuda Anossi and people like that lived on. And, you know, it's not the way of poverty. Poverty is a different mahal. That's also true. By the way, this business with the retreads, I remember I'm going by memory. Uh, I saw once in Zevin's Sipur Hasinam that among his many followers, the original had the grandson or great-grandson, whatever, of the note of Yehuda. It was a little bit weird, but that's what happened. And the note of Yehuda was a big misnagin. And the original is supposed to have said, 
to know to the know his grandson, he said, you know, your great grandfather, whoever it was, the Nodi Behuda, was pretty much a contemporary of Baal Shem Tov. More or less. And I'm telling you what Zevin reports the story that the originator said. <coughs> and when the Baal Shem Tov was born, he was a new soul. He was a new tire also, not a retread. Baal Shem Tov. Uh, and the idea was to bring the the, the Hamonam back to Yiddishkeit. But the power of a new soul is so extraordinary. In other words, it's like a magnetism that basically if the Balsamta would have had the field left himself and it would just be him, it wouldn't be a fair fight with the Yitzhar. He would nuke the Yitzhar. So powerful would his charismatic magnetism be because of the power of his soul that of course all the Hamonam, all the Jewish people, without exception, would have flocked and become Hasidim, become from they given up their various and so forth. And that's not fair because God wants a world in which there's a Bechira. So you have to have the good and the bad in some kind of equipoise. And so to make the game fair, the Rishoner said, Hashem also, at the same time roughly, sent down the Neshama of your great-grandfather, the Nod of Yehuda, to be of a snogget, right? And to oppose the Baal Shem Tov. And that way it made a fair fight. <laughs> right, which means he was saying, you know, your your family also has a rare uh, new tire, not a retread. That's the world of thinking that we're talking about over here, and there are many many mices about this, and I'm talking about even from the art school book. You know, they'll say, Sim came there and they said, oh, they listen to the retire. It wasn't as impressive as someone else, but then they walked away and said, all right, it's, it's not the tire he's giving of it's it's the whole business. You see? And so all I can tell you is that um, he emerged as this archetype of a Rebbe who's not a rabbi. He's not a rabbi. Not a small R, not a big R. That's not the source of his authority. Uh, it's a different business. And the Hamona lo- uh, um, um, loved it. Now, like I said before, if I'm a poor Jew, or, or not a poor Jew, even a Gvir, you travel to Rishon, you saw the palace and all the rest of it. This is like going to Disneyland, man. It's a Jewish Disneyland. Yet, everything's rich and fancy, but it's a from. To some people, this is their idea of as good as it gets. And just imagine the poor Chassid, who is struggling to make a living. And let's say he has three daughters. He's worried about Shaduchan. After all, they're becoming 10 years old. <laughs> and he'll travel 100, 200 miles to Rishon to see the Rebbe, have an audience with him, and he'll get a bracha, whatever it is. Forget the bracha or not. He's going to come back to his hick village where nothing happens all the time. Nothing ever happens. It's no movies. It's no bookstore. It's no nothing. And he's going to pack people and say, Wow. Did you go? Yeah, I went there. What was it like? Is it Disneyland? It was a palace. It was a palace. De la Palace. Did you see the golden coach? I saw the golden coach. And I saw this. And it was Rancer and Prancer and the horses. And I saw the dining room, which was like, you know, the Tsar of Russia. And I saw the servants dressed in livery. 
and I saw the golden, uh, you know, uh, silverware, you know, all that stuff. And Derisioner would eat publicly like European monarchs. And he did so in a very much like a certain style, like a royalty. And I want to tell you something right now. This guy is going to be pumped seriously for all the info we can get. Because that's where the imagination is going to go. And this will be the talk of the town for the next year or two. Plony went to see Derisioner. And he was at the palace. He saw the whole nine yards. And you want to know something? It wasn't four horses. It was 14 horses. Why are you lying? And they weren't all black. They were white and green and blue. And why did you say this? And everybody screams at each other. And a grand time is had by all. Now, there is nothing harmful in any of this. It certainly was no threat to Russia. This is something people want to do. It's, I'll say it again. It's a voluntary. And he's not using it to dominate or control anybody. He didn't need to. The, the followers came to him all the time, by the tens of thousands, from everywhere. We'll see. There are people that traveled from Palestine to go see the prisoner. And basically, it's like everybody's coming every day to give you money, you know? That's what it was. Imagine a Gvir, a rich guy, who comes and sees the palace. He's like this. This guy's impressive because he's rich. You know what I'm saying? Agvir doesn't say like this. Oh, if he's the real thing, why doesn't he live an abstemious lifestyle? That's not how they think. It's a, it's a strange for somebody like me, but I understand the historical reality of it. Now, everything was going good. And I would even say it was building up more and more. But in 1825, when our hero was, I guess, in his late 20s, the situation changed for the worse because the emperor, Alexander I, died under mysterious circumstances, as is well known. The Russians really recently made a Russian movie about that. And his brother, Nicholas I, became the emperor for the next 30 years. And Nikolai I was a super anti-Semite. And the personification of control freak, the anal top-down you know, uh, dictator type, and the Jews who were under his control, which was Rove, Minion, Rove, Minion, Clyde, all just screwed. They were. Now, the Russian government, now listen closely to what I'm about to say. The Russian Empire, Russian government, was under the Tsars. The Tsar of Russia was an autocrat, which means absolute dictator. But there's a difference between an autocrat and a dictator, which is interesting. There's a difference between the way the Tsars ran the Russia, and let's say Stalin. Okay? And the difference is law. As I said before, the Tsars of Russia ran the situation in such a way that they did have absolute dictatorial power. There was no check or limitation on what they could do. If they wanted, they could kill somebody. On the other hand, they learned long ago that a country, if it's run properly, has to be run on, on on a stable legal basis. There have to be laws, which are basically fair, at least by the standards of that society. And there's institutions of law to gain respect from the public that people will be willing to listen to them. So it has to have some kind of modicum of equity. Now, it's all relative. So, for example, 
during the time we're talking about, you had slavery in Russia, the Serbs. Whites, not blacks. Tens of millions of people, their mamish slaves, Kenyan a goof, to the nobles. And there were slave revolts from time to time, but notice that was considered normal at that time. Legal. So it was a top-down situation. But the way the Tsar ran the country was through a bureaucracy. I'm the ruler. If I want to, I can figure out who should be the dog catcher in Yehobitzville. So why should I waste my time with a decision like that? i got international affairs, vast macroeconomic affairs. I've used stuff to take care of. I don't want to take care of all the little details of administration. I can if I want. And so Russia set up a legal state, which ran according to the laws, and had their system and their bureaucracy. And the czar listened to it. He didn't have to, but he followed it because he wants to set an example. Everybody should listen to the law. Okay. On the other hand, there's nothing to stop him from making a new law. So if you're Nicholas I, one of the first things you do is you use, and they had a Senate that he appointed, and they're the ones who formally passed the laws and they made it legal. Now, Nikolai, early on, starting 1827, started passing laws against Judaism. Now, he wouldn't admit it, right? Because this is the 1800s, after the French Revolution. So you're not supposed to look like you're anti-Semitic. But of course, they were ferociously anti-Semitic. And the poor idiot Jews didn't get it. <laughs> what they should have done is stay out of the way as much as possible. But they ain't a cop. So there was one time, for example, when Nikolai went on a tour through Lithuania, I think it was, and the Jews came out to greet the Tsar. They thought that they are doing a good thing. He saw a, a sea of black hats. And he said, what the heck is this? This is our country, not Jerusalem. And that made him double down against the Jews. You know, you have to understand the mentality of these guys. But the good side is, when you have a country based on rational laws, so you can't do criminal acts. If you would ask Nicholas I, what would you like to do with all the Jews? My Lechatkila option was to kill all six million of them. But he would say then, unfortunately, we can't do that. You see what I'm saying? He accepted limitations of that sort of thing his own power. When we have the 20th century, you have Hitler and Stalin, they basically said, the law can be whatever wants in the books. I have the right to send criminals to break the law and just kill people. And people are so terrorized, they won't say anything about it. It was not legal, legal in Germany to kill 6 million. And if you ever read the Vivante Conference, or you see the movie of the Vivante Conference, there's one in German and one in English. You see, the legal bureaucrats are arguing at the conference, this is Nazi Germany. This is not illegal. You're not allowed to do this. It's not legal. And the SS chiefs like Heydrich and the others, they say, don't worry about the legal. Like, just get out of the way. And of course, they did get out of the way. As we know, they did carry out the final solution. So in other words, it was criminal even by that country, but the head of the country was a criminal named Hitler. And same thing in um, Stalin. And in Mao Zedong and all the other places, they break their own laws. They, 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 it's, 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 you put a poshea as a dictator. But that's not exactly what it was in Russia. It was a more modified form. So Nikolai I could, I remember the first thing he did was deprive the Jewish kalos of their um, coercive powers. Then he passed laws you have to dress like Dying. Then he passed laws that you try to stamp out um, Lichtmenschen, 
there's a whole long story, Nicholas I. Um, very long story. And how does it affect the Rebbe's? The Russian government is very suspicious. Theoretically, the Rebbe could become part of a, 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 a uprising because he's got followers. If you're if you're a bureaucratic absolute state, you don't like anybody with a following. And here's this guy, Derishner, you know, who's got a big following. On the other hand, he never did anything political at all. You understand? So, like, what do you charge him on? You can't you, you, you can't do nothing to him. Now you could, like I said before. If he wanted to, he could send assassins just kill him. That's not the style. So, you know, and not only the original Rebbe, all the Rebbe's, you know, Lubavitch and all the others, they were watched. And they knew that people were coming from all over the place to visit them and all the rest of it. But as far as they could see, they had informers. There's nothing political because Hasidus is not involved in European politics. But it's just interesting in that regard. Then this thing happened which makes the story so interesting, which drew my attention to this. And that is, then something involved the breaking of a law came to the attention of the emperor, and he obsessed on it. In 1839, I think it was. Uh, so that would mean our hero was 41, 42 years old. Uh, two Muslims were found at the bottom of a river or something like that. Now, Moser is a person who forms in the Jewish community. Sometimes these guys were outrageous. There were two guys who were particularly bad. One of the things that happened in Nicholas I was the Cantonists you've heard of, where they used to draft the little boys and send them off to, you know, to, to 25 years in Russian army. Raise your hand if you like to be in the army. Raise your hand if you like to go to boot camp. Raise your hand if you like to go to Russian boot camp in the time of Nikolai I. The kids would be attacked, raped, uh, abused, and forced them to become Christian. It was a hell. And so, what did the Jewish communities do? What in general did the firm Jews do? The only thing you could do was try to operate in the following way. We're dealing in the early 1800s. It's before the railroad, the telegraph, the telephone, and all that stuff, modern communication. Things were still relatively primitive. If you're Jewish, you adjust yourself to that reality and try to take advantage of the primitive situation. And what that means is, is this. The czar or the government may pass us some law, but at the end of the day, the law has to be implemented by the local official. So Nikolai appoints the big you know, governors, and then the governors below them appoint the little governors and the small fry. So if I'm Jewish, the face of the government is the local small fry. You know, the mayor, the district commissioner, the police guy, whatever. Bribe the hell out of all these guys, that's it. <laughs> Put it bluntly. Just pay them off. Usually that worked. The government officials were not so well paid. And anyway, the type of person, especially the time of Nikolai I, was a corrupt. Uh, and so the government said, all the Jews should wear, I don't know, European hats. All the Hasidim will cut together, or even not Hasidim, and they'll give the guy a wad of money and just say, just say everybody's wearing the blue hats. <laughs> you get it? Everybody has to go to public school. Just say everybody's going to public school. After all, you're not going to get audited. The chances are you're not going to get audited. And that really worked most of the time. Now, I repeat, if the government wanted to double down on something, then you're in trouble. 
If they just like audit, like the IRS, if they want to go after you, you're in trouble. But you rely on the fact they usually won't go after you. <laughs> That's how the Jews did it. Usually, as much as they could. That said, they've done it throughout history, and it worked. So at the macro level, the government was passing all these laws. At the local level, the Jews tried to vitiate this by suborning the local officials. Ayotami's bribery. The whole system was a disgusting system. I'm just fighting back with fire with fire. The government was anti-Semitic. You understand? The government was out to mess over the Jews. So all three in love and war. If you're Hasidic, it's even better because the rabbi can you know, mobilize more money. You know, organize the uh, followers in a certain way. And that's what happened. But I repeat, if you're the subject of an audit, they'd be in trouble. Well, in 1839, I think it was 1838, <laughs> uh, two Muslims were killed. They were telling all the time when they're trying to hide local kids or not give them away to the, to the draft boards. Uh, I forget what others, they were doing bad things. I forgot what the other things they were uh, informing on, the people not paying taxes. And these are wicked guys. And so it's an old tradition going back to the Gemara that you kill them. This is a rare case, you know, Talmudic culture is a legalistic culture. It's a rare case of extra legal action, but then again, it's political in nature. And legal systems always, you know, crack when it comes to political pressure. As we did, for example, in this country when they arrested all the Japanese in World War II. You know, that sort of thing. Abraham Lincoln suspended the constitutional rights of many people in the Civil War. When it runs a political crisis, then the regular legal system cracks. Now, these two guys were bumped off. The Hasidim paid off the local officials... So, as we would say today, there were no charges brought. There was no investigation. They probably put down accidental death and all this kind of stuff. I don't remember the exact story, but somehow or other got to higher up, bubbled up, that these guys had been, you know, bumped off, as most of them were. And he saw it as a Jewish act. And the original Rebbe had been nearby at the time. It was like clear to everybody that he gave the green light for this. Which is... I totally believe it. I don't remember exactly how, but it rose up the food chain. Eventually came to the Tsar, Nicholas I. Now, for some reason, he became obsessed on this. It really ticked him off. Ah, he's running an empire which people are killed and crushed and the peasants are destroyed every day, the slaves. He became obsessed on this. And because he became obsessed on this, he formed what we would call today a federal task force. And then you're in trouble. It's like Rabashkin, you know. When they make a task force on you and they concentrate, then you're in trouble. Uh, how's it go? <laughs> when they pull your card, then you're in big trouble. And they're descended upon the place of the crime. A huge task force, I'll use American terms, a huge task force from the Department of Justice, the FBI, and all the rest of it the czar's equivalents, and they arrested a bunch of people, and they gave them all kind of professional interrogation, and this and that and the other. Now, nobody cracked. It's interesting, as I recall, 
everybody lied. And, you know, nobody said the Rebbe did it. But the Tsar was sure that he did it. But on the other hand, he was following, he, he did feel it necessary to follow the legalities. And legally speaking, you got to go through a process. Now, if it was Stalin, he just sent up and shoot him. But this is the Tsar. And so they had the Rebbe arrested as a suspect and interrogated. But again, the Hasidim immediately swung into action. I remember they got him like a luxury suite in the uh, in the jail, and they got him kosher food. And he didn't crack, and they couldn't get what they wanted on him. So if you know, what and when they had like the legal trial or something like that, all they could say is there's just not evidence. He may have done it, but we don't have the evidence to convict him, which really frustrated the emperor. But I'll say it again. He said, I got to follow my own procedures. He kept an eye on him. But from then on, the rabbi saw this is not a good situation. And he moved elsewhere to uh, Moldavia, which at that time was part of the Russian Empire. Now we're talking the area today, which is Moldova is a separate country, used to be part of Romania. These are the areas, if you know the map, I'm sure you don't know the map, especially in the 1800s. This used to be territory of the Turkish Empire and the Russians in a series of war in the early 1800s started tearing away these territories from the Turkish Empire um, to the area that the Russians took away from Moldavia, they called Bessarabia, the Russians did, and it was bordering on the Austrian Empire to the extreme east, called Bukovina. I can't help it if you don't know where these places are. It is what it is. And so the Rebbe relocated there and he basically said to the authorities, I'm giving up being a Rebbe. I'm just going to be a businessman. Because since he was a millionaire, I repeat, he was a millionaire. So he belonged to a second, the second guild, which means he belonged to a high level of citizens. Because in Tsarist Russia at that time, you know, people had different laws depending on the economic standards in society. And if you're rich, really a separate set of laws applied to you. And he was rich, so a separate set of laws applied to him. I told you it was a control freak country. So in order to be a merchant and go from town to town, he had to belong to a special group, illegally register with the government. But he did. And he basically said, I'm switching to become a businessman in Romania, in Moldavia. Uh, I think, I mean, I've read, I don't know if it's true, he wanted to be in an area where the, 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 the Russian governor was better to the Jews. It was famous, Count Voronsov. I don't know if that means, I'm sure it doesn't mean anything to you. Prince Voronso was a very famous Russian general and governor of the Jews. He fought the Caucasus Wars. And he was the governor of that area. And he was more benevolent towards the Jews. At least they say he is. That's the Machlokas among Russian and Georgian historians. I'm not going into that. Um, but this is a guy made Odessa, you know, the big city. And so far, so good. But meanwhile, the emperor wouldn't let it go. He said, you know, we're going to get evidence on this guy. And the Hasidim were raising money right and left to pay the huge legal expenses and also to set up a spy system so they can find out what's happening at the top of the Russian government. So here you have Tsarist, this is funny, they have Tsarist Russia, which is highly secretive. Uh, what's his name? 
Right at this time, the famous Frenchman, the Marquis de Custine, wrote his famous book about traveling in Russia. He says, you know, they're hiding everything. The maps are lying. Everything's deceptive. They tell you one thing really to something else. This is in the 1800s. The Marquis de Custine is like the equivalent of Tocqueville visiting America. He wrote, he wrote the classic book on Russia. If you went to Russia, you have to read the book. And here, the Hasidim ball, through their network and bribery, it's like bushes in Borough Park. You know what I mean? They know, they know what's happening behind the scenes. And they found out that the Emperor's getting ready to, um, to what he called The Emperor is getting ready to arrest the Rebbe and send him to Siberia in general terms, not punishing him, but since you want to live a spiritual life, we'll send you to Siberia, we'll give you a minion, and then you can live your spiritual life. All which means he's going to be sent to Siberia. <laughs> and so he had to get the heck out of there. That's a long story, and I'm, and, and I'm collapsing it. If you want the details, you'd have to get, I guess, Professor Ossoff's book. You could read in English called The Regal Way. I'm going by memory here. Haven't seen it in quite a while. But he did the homework in the Russian archives. And when it looked like he's going to be arrested, so he his Hasidim organized a smuggling network to smuggle him physically out of Russia over the border in the middle of winter. I think it was 1841, 42, something like that. Uh, so he was in the mid-40s. He was a delicate person. Wasn't strong. And it's a very dramatic scene because it was a snowstorm. That helped you get across the border, you know? You can be sure all the border guards were totally bribed. Here they, they turned bribery into an art form because that's how you do business over here. There is no other way of surviving. And they, uh, uh, so in the middle of the night, they took him uh, across a frozen river, which was the border between the Russian Empire on the one hand and the Austrian Empire on the other hand, between Moldavia versus, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Bukovina. You're another country. And only when he's in the other country will he feel safe. That's a long story. It's almost like a movie. In fact, I'm absolutely certain they'll make a movie this one day. Uh, because it's a frozen, and the, and the river is frozen, and they cross the river, and the ice cracks, and they fall in the water, and the river's going to drown. One of the strong Hasidim picks him up like a bovan and carries him with his shoulder to the other side. Isn't that a movie? Right? Here, I have to let, hold him for a second. Let me change this. Okay, I have to pick up. Uh, where was I say cross the river? Now, I'll tell you again. Everybody was bribed from top to bottom. So a lot of money had to be raised, and it and was raised. I mean, they took collections all over the place. I'll say it again. He had a following all over Eastern Europe. So it's just really interesting. Now, um, once you get in Austria, you're an illegal immigrant. Well, you got to fix that. Okay? Got to fix that. Um, how do you do that? So they swung into action and they raised enough money to bribe the local officials and the local courts. They found somebody like a dead guy, uh, you know, therefore who died young or something like that. I remember exactly. His name was Friedman or whatever. Uh, like that movie about killing De Gaulle. I forget what it's called. They had a jackal or something like that. 
you find a dead guy. That's what you do in the clandestine business. And basically said, this is him. He left at a young age, and now he's coming back. And he got it registered in court, and they, the Austrian courts. So everybody knew from top to bottom. The police, there's all bull. But they're, they're all bribed. And not only that, like, who cares? You know, the Hasidim go to some local magistrate in Bukovina. They say, listen, what do you make a year? You know, uh, $1,000? Here's ten grand." And just put on this guy that he's the long lost. What, like, what do you care? That's how it worked. Now it takes ten grand for this guy, ten grand for that guy, ten grand for that guy. But at the end of the day, you're talking about a certain sum. And you hit the gvirim and you say, this is the money we need. And so he was get, he assumed the identity, let's put it this way, of an Austrian citizen born there, uh, which therefore means he's not a Russian citizen. Okay? And the result is that, uh, you know, the, 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 the result is that um, he was able to be in Russia. Even everybody knew what's happening. The Russian government found out, of course, because they got their spies. I didn't even know how hidden this all was. And the Tsar of Russia was really angry. And there was an extradition treaty. Now, how do you beat that? First of all, the Austrian government has seen up. Why would they say no? Why would they help one help a Jew and get in, and get Russia ticked off? They had Sedexino hired these big lawyers to figure out some legal angle. And it's all money. And the lawyers say like this if you're like a a nobleman or whatever, uh a, a native poor nobleman, then you're not subject to extradition treaty. Meanwhile, the Rebbe was worried. You know, what's going to happen? But he had these chassidim around him. I remember, as soon as he landed in Austria, he said, I need 10 guys around me. feel like a Hasidic atmosphere, you know. I need to have a court. And that's who he was. And they uh, they were working young Belilo on this whole thing. And listen to this. A local nobleman, you know, a Bukovina nobleman, came to me and said like this, listen, I have a... I'm in Sadegir, which is a suburb of the big city here. And I invite you to go and set up your Reb operation on my land in Sadegir. I'll give it to you. Um, why would he do that? The guy was smart. If this becomes the new Disneyland, we'll have tourism like crazy. The Hasidim will come all over the place. I'll make money, you know, buying and selling the local stores and things like this. And it'll be good for my own pocket. In other words, this nobleman acted like the Polish nobleman used to back in the time of the Kingdom of Poland. Looking for his own, you know, pocket. Nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with what I'm saying. And he said, we get this Rebbe here. It'll become a big deal. And we'll have a lot of uh, tourism. And it'll be great for the economy. And it worked. Then, I remember exactly how it happened. But in order to beat the extradition, he had to own uh, an estate. So he had to become a Polish nobleman. And as a result, they had to find somebody who, had, who, who was a, like a nobleman who was a hard up for money, bankrupt, and buy it from him. And once he becomes, even though he's Jewish, once he becomes registered as a nobleman and a landowner, then the extradition stuff doesn't apply to him. 
Bekachava. Everything was all through bribery money. But you still needed a, 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 a decision at the top. Because the Austrian government might just give you back anyway. Why should they? I mean, they know it's phony. You know? They know it's phony. And so, you know, where is it going? Now, the thing is like this. Uh, the Austrian Empire at that particular time, 1840, was highly centralized and was run by, well, there was an emperor, but the emperor, and I'm saying this as a statement of fact, not as pejorative, was mentally retarded. Is the Emperor Ferdinand I. Uh, that's really the truth. So the government was run by two people, Prince Metternich and the other guys, a Stadion or something like that. So two high officials ran everything. Metternich, if you know anything about him, was the arch-reactionary, the leader of the right wing, um, the person who was the enemy of liberalism, uh, he made it that in Austria for years and years there should be no politics. Everything should be left to the government. In 1848, there was rebellion against him. But I'm talking about before that. And he was a super Catholic. And I would say he's an anti-Semite. Why not? On the other hand, even anti-Semite at that time had some Jewish friends. Now you tell me, who, what kind of a Jewish friend with a guy like Metternich had. Well, Rothschild. <laughs> That's the answer. Right? Why? Because Rothschild gives him a lot of money. It's a long, complicated subject. This would be, I think, Solomon Rothschild, who wasn't even allowed to own a house. He had to live in a hotel. At the same time, he was a baron. He was a zillionaire. So the Hasidim know, if you want to get to Metternich, you got to get to Rothschild. Because if Rothschild will say, you want to do me a particular favor, personal favor, since I do you favors all the time, you know, let this Rebbe go. But how are you going to persuade Rothschild? Solomon Rothschild was a traditional Jew, but very far removed from the Yiddish guy stuff. And I'm sure a guy like him had no time for Rebbes. And, you know, you tell him, oh, this guy got to save his life and break the law, because they're talking about breaking the law. Uh, and, and take off Russia, which is international politics. You know, why, why should the Austrian government want to do that? Uh, they relied on the alliance with Russia for many things. A few years later, it was a big revolt, revolt in Hungary against the Austrians, and they had to ask the Russian army to come in and suppress their revolt for them. So you did touch on international politics. So the Hasidim then figured out like this. So they must have had a Hasidic high command running the whole operation. i tell you, it's a movie, or a miniseries. And he said, how are we going to portray Rothschild? Rothschild in Vienna has nothing to do with Hasidim. He'll look at us like you're weirdos. We got to find somebody Rothschild respects. And in Poland, it was Rabbi Meisels, who I think was at that time the chief rabbi in Warsaw, but also was a millionaire businessman. And him and Rothschild did business. So a guy at the level of Rothschild, he doesn't know Chaim Yankel and Schmerl. You know, he knows other Gvirin. So this guy's a Gvir. They can talk to each other. But uh, Meisels, was it Mordechai Meisels? I forget his name. Uh... He was, not, he was a misnagid. And so somehow they got to him and said, listen, we need you to step up to the plate to, to save the life of the original rabbit. And he did it. There's a Hasidic tale, I don't know if it's true or not, that he first says it's all baloney, and then they said, no, the guy's the real thing, and they said, you know, 
he really is Malchus. If you watch when he eats, he doesn't bend over when he has his soup. And he said, that's ridiculous. The story goes, and they say, you try it. You'll see every time you want to eat your soup. It's not like the guy in the army, you know, you bring it up to, I forget what it's called, eating with a square, you know. You pick up the spoon, you bring it up, you bring it to you without you bending at all. That's the sign of his Malchus. And, you know, every time Mordecai, the story is every time Rabbi Meisel tried to do, he bend over like you and I do. And they say, I guess the guy's the real thing. That's a Meisel. But anyway, the long and the short is he stepped up to the plate. And he told Rothschild, this guy's the real thing and we need you to intervene. And Rothschild asked Metternich to do him a favor. And Metternich said, all right, it's a personal favor. And the Austrian government did not give him back. And so the rebel was therefore able to relocate to Sadegar, which is like a suburb of the bigger city of Chernowitz. Now they call Chernuti. Chernowitz was the capital of this province. It's not book. It's not Galicia. I mean, I you know, I'm trying to explain to people. No, no, it's 19th century geography. The Austrians in the 18th century were able to acquire part of Poland called Galicia. And then there's another little piece, which used to be part of the Turkish Empire, which because of the politics between Joseph II and, and Catherine the Great, they you know, it was given to Austria. If you're Hasidic, you'll say it was given to Austria in a, in a weird gesture. So just so the rabbit could be saved. And the Austrians, in order to Germanize the area to the best of their ability, built up the city of Chernowitz. So if you've ever been to Lemberg, to Lvov, as I was a couple years ago, you'll see the Austrians, wherever they went, they tried to make it like a little Vienna. Fancy, metropolitan-looking, European-looking. Excuse me, in Chernowitz also. So here in the outskirts, that city, were estates, and that's where the rabbit settled. No, they even settled in some for Darwin, if I cocked a little place that nobody ever heard of before, there's like within the regional importance in the Chasheva area. And that's where he stayed till the end of his life and his descendants after him, you know, till, till the 20th century, Sadegar. So the region became the Sadegar. They couldn't stay in Rizhen because it was, it was in Russia, so he relocated to the Sadegar. So that means for the last decade or so less, that's where he lived until he died. And he was able to start getting money again and followers. So that means they had smuggled the money over the border, but they did do it. And with the money, he's able to rebuild the palace and start the whole operation going again. So what he'd not been able to do in Russia, he was able to so he beat the system. I remember he wrote to the Russian emperor saying, I want a pardon. The emperor said no. And he wanted his family to be released and all kinds of things like that. The Tsar of Russia was really ticked off. But he wasn't so crazy to send assassins over. That's what Stalin would have done. Send a hit squad. He didn't do that. Because it was still a legal era. But meanwhile, at least he kicked the guy out of his country. And uh, all of a sudden, our hero found himself in a very unusual situation. Which was, he's now a parts. Mamish. In a way, he had not been in Ukraine. There, he just owned a, 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 a large palace. Here, he owned a palace and an estate. And this is before 1848, before um, the emancipation of the serfs. And so that means he owned Avodim, Kenyan goof. I mean, Goyim, Catholic peasants, were now owned by him, because that was the old aristocratic system in Central Europe and Eastern Europe. And then I remember, then he had the halachic question, what about Shabbos? These are people really working 
on Shabbos for you. And I saw it somewhere. Let me go get the book. Um, in the Sari Hameyah. And he didn't know what to do. Because, again, he never claimed to be a posseg, you understand. Never claimed. And so he sent a shout to the nearby posseg. It was in Brody, which is in Galitia, not far away. That was a Shlomo Kluger. And I remember Shlomo Kluger wrote him a letter and gave him hell. It's really funny. One second. Uh, okay, yeah, I found it. It's in Sarmea number four at the end, uh, where the original man wrote a letter, and then it's reprinted. I don't know where it's from. Ah, here. It's in Shalos and Shuls of Bachar de Bachayim. You know, he, the Shlomo Kluger has a lot of different form on Shalos and Shuls. And it's a long piece, and in the very beginning, he's basically asking what I do as far as Shabbos is concerned. You know what I mean? Melech is and so forth and so on. And, uh, uh, he said, he writes in very, uh, now Shlomo Klug was not a chassid. That's an understatement. And, uh, he says, oh, I'll read it over here. He said, I'm very proud that you, uh, happy you sent me the letter. Uh, and there's a few things I want to get off my chest, Shlomo Klug says. And I wasn't going to say anything. I will keep Shoshana Dabra but since you approach me, I'll tell you what I really think. And anything I'm saying is like the Prophet Jeremiah. It may be harsh, but I'm saying it with a good intention. And first, um, well, it's too long and flowery, I guess. Uh, but the bottom line is, he says, uh, why are you buying an estate and becoming a landlord of Polish parts? Don't get angry at me. It really bothered me that you became a landowner and now you own a city and a village, meaning you own all these estates. And everybody knows in Shemaim Bars that to tell you the truth, as soon as they heard that they're thinking about emancipating the peasants, Basis, well, I'm sorry, emancipating the Jews so that legally the Jews can own land. I didn't like it. I didn't like it, Shlomo Kluger says. Lickness, Kwan Vayaris, that they can uh, own land and Chutzlarts. So, I was opposed to the emancipation and that the Jews now can be landowners. I know. That I don't know anything in Kabbalah, and I'm not too smart in Nigla either, which is baloney, of course. When I heard that the Jews are now able to own land and estates, I saw that as a negative, right? This is going to cause the Gauls to be longer. It's satanic. Because it's well known in Jewish history that when Jews own land in Pol- in the kingdom of Poland, now they never owned land, they leased it from the landlord. When they did it, they're always Machal Shabbos. No, it's nobody, it's like impossible to keep a situation where you're not being nana from the malacha that the peasants are doing for you. It's almost impossible. Okay? Uh, and those who ran inns, and every Jew once upon a time ran a bar, an inn in Russia. You can't keep Shabbos. Not really. 
He got to twist and turn and bend and this and that and the other. And, and he's convinced that this open chil of Shabbos, because people say you got to be realistic, is what lengthened the goal is. Uh, uh, what do you call it? And therefore, and you see what happened eventually was that the Gaisha governments, it's the 19th century already, in Russia and in Austria, prohibited the Jews from owning bars and prohibited the Jews from owning land. It's like a mita kenegamita. But now the Jews themselves, instead of leasing it from the landlords, they themselves can buy be tremendous Shabbos on the part of the workers and the peasants. So, in other words, you're part of a trend that's a negative trend. And he is a long thing, you know, based on the Gemaras. All I can tell you, it goes for several pages. And he basically said, if you're really from, you wouldn't buy an estate in Chotzarts. Right? If you really believe the Mashiach is coming tomorrow. Now, obviously, Shlomo Kogu didn't get it. You know, the situation that the Sadiger was in, the Rosh and the Rebbe, was an unusual situation. But this very interesting difference in mentality that's revealed here. I'll say it again. If you're interested in the thing, you can look at Shalatus, the Bechart, the now, uh, uh, I always thought that's very interesting. I think this kind of guilty conscience, that is my opinion, I think this kind of guilty conscience, it was why am I living up high and mighty in Chutzlaritz when the Jews should really be looking at Eretz row. This style of being a Reish Galusa, because once upon a time, the Jews had a Reish Galusa who lived in big palaces and had you know, riders and all the fancy stuff back in the Middle Ages. And it was considered appropriate because it's come from David Amalek. So this style that he's embracing, at the end of the day, after all the um, justifications, a Jew should be looking to Eretz Yisrael. And indeed, there was a chassid who had made Aliyah with his family, Nissenbeck. And I don't know... Who was from Poland, you know, from that area. And for some reason, and he and his father made Aliyah like 1830 or so. He's born 1815, became 1831. He's a whole story by himself. They would do another time. And this is the early years of Palestine, 1820s, 30s, when the very, very first Jews were coming. And this man was always very practical, him and his father. And they're able to get along with the Turkish rulers very well for certain reasons. That was Montefiore. And he traveled several times to Sadegar, to Rizhen, wherever it was, to visit this Rebbe. And the Rizhen Rebbe said, I want to raise money for you to buy stuff in Eretz Yisrael. And in my personal opinion, I think the long-term plan of the Rizhen Rebbe was to build a palace in Israel. The only problem is that was far off. The were there, nobody lived in Israel. But that's how we would like to do it. And maybe he had messianic ideas, I don't know. And what's very well known, but now with the stuff of legend, is that you had this guy Nissenbeck in Palestine, who has a lot of ideas and very talkative type of guy, 
and wanted to build a, a printing press and farms. I'll call him an early Zionist, even though that's not the right word at all. It was a Hasidic guy said, I don't mean modern Zionism, but you know what I mean. And um, schools, I mean, he had a lot of ideas. They didn't have the money. The Rebbe has the money. So it's a good shidduch. And the Rebbe said like this, you do this and this project, I'll raise the money. And so, one of the, and so they did certain things in early Palestine. It's too long to go into. I'll just say this much. He did, um, uh, he did do, um, how should I put it? He did do, um, he bought land in Yerushalayim. There's a famous story that the Tsar of Russia going by a piece of land and the Rebbe heard about it and he hopped the mice. I don't think it's actually true. People don't really know the real history of the Russian compound. But it doesn't matter. He bought a piece of land the same time the Russians did. In the 1840s. The idea being it's for pilgrims. Uh, and the idea was to build a big shul there. The Rebbe died in 1850. Now he was in the early 50s. Nissen Beck took this idea. And it took him a long time. And eventually built a big shul there. So, the Pharisee Israel, because the, the originator's name was Israel. So, if you know what Yerushalayim looked like a hundred years ago, if you went to the Rova Yehudi, there were two big shuls, A and B. One was the uh, Korba Shul, that has now been rebuilt, and that was Nosagash But Nissan Beck built one for Sparta, uh, for Nosag uh, Sparta, for Chasinum. And that was the Pharisee Israel. They're both Jaygundo synagogues. And it was a whole problem of getting permission from the Turks. There's a whole long story to it. And believe it or not, I forget how, they got the Emperor Franz Josef of Austria to intervene on behalf of the Shul. And later on, he gave a donation to the Shul. There are legends about that. And that Shul was built, but it was destroyed by the Jordanians in the 48 War. Because to tell you the truth, the Haganah was using it as headquarters. But anyway, the Jordanians didn't like the idea that in the old city, which they took over, should be two large, gigantic shoals, remnants of the Jewish presence, and they flattened the whole place. Ar Ar Adi Um This was the legacy in Eretz Yisrael of the original Rebbe, of Sadiger Rebbe. Uh, the, uh, that's why they called Nissen Beck Shoal, because Nissen was a, Beck was a, like a chassidivist. He made himself a chassidist. I'll tell you again, it's unusual. He had followers everywhere. And um, I would think that's the most visible you know, remnant, that shetach of land, of the Rishner's interest in Eretz Yisrael. If he would have lived another 10, 20 years, that would be the 1850s and 60s, when the communications tremendously improved, that the steamship and the railroads and all the rest of it, I'm sure, Libby, I'm really, that he would have moved to Israel or set up some kind of operation over there. Which would have been a very interesting thing. As it is, he died at the very beginning of this period, 1850. So it never quite happened. Derision left several sons, the Sadiger. Uh, they kept up the fancy lifestyle. This provoked the anger, super anger of the Sansa Rebbe. As a result, a huge war broke out in the late 1800s between the Sans team on the one hand, the Rishner branches on the other. That's an ugly business I'm not going to go into. 
Um, and so the Virgin never left a, a funny legacy, you might say. Uh, but nevertheless, it's one of the major dynasties. And he beat the system. When I say beat the system, it's tremendous because you see, the Hasidim learned the ropes. They weren't European diplomats, especially at that time when European diplomacy was conducted at the aristocratic level. But they learned what they needed to know. And they worked how to, they learned how to work the system. And they saved him. They couldn't save others. They couldn't change the Russian government. They couldn't change the Austrian government at that time. But if you single focus like a laser on a single thing, they could get it done. Which is an amazing story. As far as the Russians are concerned, they got rid of him. Patafonatsara. And that's the end of it. Uh, it's, a, it's a wild story. Um, the uh, It's a classic example, in my uh, uh, opinion, if you study the details of the case, of how the bureaucratic absolute state ran up against the Hasidic movement and how they sort of wrestled with each other. Little did the Hasidim know that the 20th century would get much worse. Then in Central Europe become Hitler, then Eastern Europe become the communists, which then they could apply the, the, the tools of modern uh, technological totalitarianism to really shut the operation down. But that's for a different time. Anyway, I'm now I've gone way over time, but um, once again, I want to thank Jacob Blumenfeld and the family. And with that, I wish you a good week. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.